Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Well, we are on week two of our summer break, and I have to say, I'm pretty darn excited about some of the things we've got coming down the pike for season five. I've had a lot of great conversations over the last few days, and I can't wait for you to hear them. But in the meantime, and as promised, we'll keep you entertained. Today, we bring you the audio version of Executive Director Kevin Butterfield's recent live stream with Dr. T.H. Breen. Breen is the William Smith Mason Professor of History Emeritus at Northwestern University. He has been a leading scholar of colonial America and the Revolution for the past several decades, and he's long been interested in the ordinary, everyday folk who inhabited this world. Breen's latest book is called The Will of the People, The Revolutionary Birth of America, and it is the subject of today's talk. We were fortunate to have him as the third and final participant in our Michelle Smith Lecture Series. Now, just a reminder that if you'd like to see the images that Breen and Butterfield discuss over the course of their conversation, head over to mountvernon.org slash gwdigitaltalks to watch the full video. We'll be back in a few weeks with all new episodes of Conversations at the Washington Library. And until then, I hope you enjoy this program. Good evening, everyone. My name is Kevin Butterfield. I'm the executive director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. Uh, Many of you have been there before. Uh, You're not there now. You're actually in my dining room. Uh, But you have an opportunity to uh, join us for our third and final Michelle Smith lecture uh, for the year 2020. We began this series um, years ago with the support of the Robert H. and Corey Smith Foundation. Uh, We began it this year in February with a talk from Jonathan Horn on Washington's retirements. Uh, We were joined post-closure and from our homes by Dr. Edward Larson on Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. And today, uh, this evening, we get to talk about the most important moment in the lifetime of George Washington, and some will argue one of the most important moments in world history, the American Revolution with Dr. Timothy Breen. But before we we, uh, begin that conversation, I want to thank you for being here. Uh, Many of you are subscribers uh, to this Michelle Michelle Smith Lecture Series this year. Uh, You all will have received a copy, a signed copy of this book, signed by Dr. Breen. Um, But also many of you are not subscribers and are joining us from your homes, uh, many of you around the country and even beyond our national borders. Uh, We're thrilled to have you with us, and we look forward to welcoming you back to Mount Vernon's soon. Uh, My thanks go on behalf uh, not only of the library and the team that's put this together. uh, Dr. Jim Ambusky, our our director for the Center for Digital History, has been uh, uh, essential in in creating so much of this programming that we have. Uh, But I also want to thank you on behalf of of the most important organization in Mount Vernon, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, uh, which rescued Mount Vernon from uh, certain ruin in the 1850s and have preserved it and continue to protect it uh, through today in this current crisis and in this current challenge. Uh, They've been through difficult times in the past and they are stewarding uh, one of the most important historic sites in our nation uh, up through and into into this this new century and in this new challenge. Uh, So thank you on behalf of of Mount Vernon, of the library and the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Uh, I wanna mention a couple of things that we have coming just around the corner because we're coming up on an important holiday weekend uh, and we have a series of events beginning on Monday. And I'll talk to you about Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. Uh, on Memorial Day itself, uh, we have a member exclusive event. So for those of you who are members of Mount Vernon, uh, will be able to join uh, Dr. Doug Bradburn, our president and CEO, in conversation with Rick Atkinson, 
author of a uh, the first book of a trilogy on the American Revolutionary War. Uh, they'll be uh, joined, um, or they'll be uh, coming to you at four o'clock on Monday afternoon. On Tuesday evening, uh, in our regular book series, uh, Dr. Jim Busky will be in conversation with Harvard professor Vincent Brown on his new book, on one of the most important slave rebellions of the 18th century, Tacky's Revolt in the Caribbean. On Wednesday night, and this is a, um, a bonus event, uh, we don't normally have Wednesday night events, but Wednesday night we'll have a special uh, book conversation uh, with three authors uh, of a book, as well as General John Kelly, uh, who will also be joining us for that conversation, uh, moderated by uh, Mary Catherine Hamm. This is a book about uh, people who have lost loved ones in war, in this case, uh, three women who have lost their spouses in war in recent years. These are gold star families. You'll often hear that phrase. This will be a book about their experiences, about their the challenges that they faced and their uh, their path to, to the present. And we're, we're excited about this event. We, we are happy to be able to hold this uh, on Memorial Day week uh, and a great opportunity uh, to talk about really some of the, the, the real effects of war, uh, both past and present. Uh, but today, uh, we have a great opportunity again to dive into one of the most important uh, historical events. Certainly, uh, the founding moment in our nation's history is, is a revolution that we still try to understand and we still grapple with. We try to come to terms with what exactly this revolution was all about. And to help us do that tonight, we have Dr. Timothy Breen, who comes to us. Uh, he's been a professor for years at Northwestern University. He's coming to us, I believe, from Vermont. Am I getting that right? Dr. Northern Green? Vermont, almost to Canada. Ooh. Thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, from near the border. Uh, uh, Dr. Breen is the author of, of many important books and articles on the American Revolution, um, most of which you read if you go through graduate school, uh, as I did. And I, uh, uh, my first introduction uh, to Dr. Breen, Dr. Breen's work was a, a little article called The Bobbles of Britain or something similar to that, uh, uh, that was then turned into an important book, The Marketplace of Revolution. Um, but here tonight, uh, I'm excited to dive into uh, your latest attempt to grapple with the American Revolution. And I want to ask you, as, just as a way to get started, um, what led you to write this book? And the book that I'm talking about is called The Will of the People, uh, The Revolutionary Birth of America. You've written about the American Revolution in the past. What did you feel you needed to say today? Well, first, uh, let me just say, Kevin, how, how much I admire your library and your own work. It's a terrific center, and scholars like myself uh, would have been hard-pressed to write the books you just mentioned without the, the tremendous work at Mount Vernon, so, so thank okay. you. Um, the American Revolution has inspired many, many ex excellent books, as you apparently read in graduate school. Um, <laughs> But the, the history of ordinary people, men and women, for the eight years of war um, has not been covered. It's a, it's a topic that has demanded attention. Other revolutions, if you study France or Ireland or Russia, there's always a book about uh, how, how did the people endure? How did they get through? How did they sustain the revolution? But in fact, actually, in our own revolution, that subject has, has gone missing, partly because we have uh, a concentration of attention on the lives and the intellectual life of a few people known as the Founding Fathers who um, uh, guided us through this uh, difficult period. So I felt that there was a, a, a topic uh, hiding in plain sight, as it were, of how 
how the people negotiated and made sense of an event that uh, transformed their lives as well as the nation's future. It's a, it's a remarkable uh, way to think about it. How did the people endure? We often describe the American Revolution, and, and I know people that write about the war often have to remind people that this was a difficult war, right? They, they often have to remind people that this was not some sort of uh, gallant uh, and, and fairly bloodless, relatively bloodless war uh, compared to so many in, our, in, in world history. Uh, they need that reminder. But you're making a, a point that's even broader than the war effort itself, uh, broader than the battlefield. What do you mean when you say, how did the people endure? What sort of challenges would the American people across the 13 colonies have been facing in their own daily lives during the war years? Right. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a very fine question. We do have um, military histories. And frankly, with all due respect to your friend George Washington, military history is um, kind of uh, not, not the happiest story all the time. There are a lot of losses or whatnot. We have intellectual histories, which uh, turned the revolution into uh, some fine uh, principles, abstract principles, but they kind of are, are timeless. And so it occurred to me in my own research over the years that uh, revolutions have their own cycle, uh, almost an emotional cycle. Uh, at the beginning of the war, there was a, a period of excitement, but um, people, many of whom would go on to be soldiers, needed assurance that, in fact, the cause was good. Uh, it takes, a, a, as your military historians say, it's, it's very difficult to go into battle. Uh, you see things and you endure things that are uh, unthinkable. And so young men uh, on the eve of the revolution actually turned to their ministers uh, for a message of assurance. This turns away from high intellectual history to sort of explaining revolution on the ground in, in your own communities. Right. But then in the early years of the war, another emotional phase occurred, Kevin, and that was uh, living with fear because uh, suddenly in your own community, uh, the enemy uh, might have been your neighbor. Uh, you look like you and there's no, there's no <laughs> dress of Tories, but violence Violence was everywhere. And so in the first years of war, the, the, major, the major adjustment that American people had to do was j j just, just living with fear. And again, if you look at other revolutions uh, like France, fear is a central word. But uh, frankly, I was one of the first to really, really bring this forward. And then um, th th there, there were another other phases. We're going to talk about a phase of betrayal when you discover that the people you think were your allies, your fellow revolutionaries, um, aren't there anymore or they turn on you. And then there's the greatest of all temptations when a war is over of seeking revenge. Uh, and it takes uh, an extraordinary power to, to, to not, in fact, sustain the carnage because you, you yourself have gone through such an attack. So there's these emotional phases. So it gives a, a kind of a, 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 a temporal uh, movement of our revolution. Most stories, frankly, uh, treat uh, jump uh, almost like bullfrogs from uh, Bunker Hill to the Declaration of Independence so maybe a couple of battles, and then whoops, the war is over, and we're on to the Constitution. Yeah. I, I, I may be, I'm exaggerating, but the, the force, the energy at the community level necessary to sustain the war is a story that I, uh, I try to tell. And let me even make that more strongly if I can. 
Yeah. If communities had not stepped up time and time again to sustain the war, to sustain the commitment to a revolutionary cause, independence, and the creation of a Republican government, we would not have won the war. The, the, the missing piece of success is us. People in little churches and in little communities and crossroads that uh, decided that even in the greatest uh, news of adversity, that they were going to sustain uh, the cause. And they did. That's, that's what the book, that's the message I try to give. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And, and one of the, uh, uh, I've, I've asked a couple of questions. One of the things I want to remind our listeners uh, or viewers is that you have the opportunity to ask you Dr. Green. So please uh, be uh, posting your comments uh, or posting your questions uh, in the comments functions that you see in front of you on Facebook or YouTube or wherever. Uh, uh, post questions. Uh, we'll, we'll about a halfway through our hour together. Uh, so here in just about 20 minutes, uh, we'll start going to audience questions, and I look forward to that. Uh, but let me uh, stay on, on this. Uh, the, you mentioned uh, different emotional registers at different uh, periods across the, the war. Um, when we when we come to say, well, let's just kind of hone in on, on uh, something like 1776, 1777, as um, y- you mentioned uh, the sort of early heyday, the early flurry of excitement. When does the, when, when, does that first challenge of can the American people sustain the revolution effort, when does it uh, begin to appear in your research? Uh, does it happen in 1776? No, 1776 is still the time of the, you know, a, a lot of excitement and, and probably false beliefs that um, maybe because of Bunker Hill and that the, that the Americans uh, can win, but the retaking of New York City at the end of 1776, um, alerted to people that they were in for a, a, a tough fight and a long haul. And when I say tough fight, I don't mean just battlefields. I mean expenditures of war, sustaining the, the men and the boys that are going off from your town. That means clothes and food and a sacrifice that affects entire entire uh, families. And so in 17. Um, 77, uh, people began to realize uh, they had a problem, and, a, a, and one of the problems uh, that I, I talk about is a chapter on revolutionary justice, because it's mm-hmm. in this period that communities um, you know, need to identify and to protect themselves from encroachment by uh, internal or domestic uh, enemies. And so uh, there's a kind of uh, uh, an unofficial community justice uh, that's in, in, enforced uh, trials and uh, um, uh, s- s- semi-institutional courts. Uh, I ask a question that many legal historians uh, found it hard to answer, but uh, the, the law had to go forward. In other words, if you had a problem in your community, say, a cow got on to Kevin's farm and ate his corn and various other things are more serious. You can't really tell um, the, the, the fellow person, look, um, I'm sorry about the cow, but let's wait until there's peace. Let's wait until the war's over and we'll, we'll settle because none of us know how long. The point is that a process of adjudication primarily focused on revolutionary ideology sustained the war in 17. 17- 
77 and uh, up until 1778. 1778, a new set of issues connected with inflation and economic suffering uh, entered a phase that uh, came very close to uh, undermining the entire revolutionary cause. I think many of your listeners who think of the revolution as a kind of a lockstep towards freedom and us and all good things uh, do not realize how perilous the cause was towards the end of the war. It, 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 people could have decided that they made a big, big mistake, that maybe being with England wasn't worth the suffering. They didn't make that decision, but it held, uh, the, the situation held in a perilous balance. That's fascinating. One of the things that uh, um, in our uh, conversation before we came onto the air and in, in my own reading uh, is that chapter uh, that, uh, that you described uh, briefly with the, the, the appearance of, of massive inflation. I wonder if you could set the stage for this document that we'll talk about shortly uh, that you see on your screen in front of you, uh, The Downfall of Justice. I wonder if you could set the stage for um, what you mean by, uh, by an economic crisis and inflation. How bad was it? What, what was going on in the late 1770s? Well, late, certainly in um, very late 1778, 79 and 80, uh, uh, conditions of hyperinflation entered uh, the war conversation. Um, the Continental Congress had issued um, really millions of dollars of unsecured currency. They had to do it. It, it, it seems like a mistake, but they had no alternative, but it was unsecured. And it uh, quickly lost value, and um, very quickly uh, the ratio of uh, the face value of a, a currency uh, was 40 to 1. Uh, to, and um, people on fixed incomes, uh, people who had marginal incomes, were badly hit by inflation. And as you know from your own reading of history and the people that are listening, uh, hyperinflation can really uh, bring down a regime. We've seen that in a number of countries in Argentina and others where hyperinflation can destabilize um, politics to a, in a dangerous uh, way. And so um, the, the Congress tried uh, to persuade people to take the currency uh, on uh, making the assumption that you were doing it for the revolution, but in fact people um, were, were, were suffering. And I point out in the book that um, uh, these communities from Williamsburg all the way up to New Hampshire uh, made a surprising decision. They could have turned on Congress. They'd say, you know, our leaders are just not up to, to it. They're, they're responsible for That's not what happened, uh, Kevin. What happened was, in fact, in community after community, people did try to find or to uh, define for themselves who was responsible, who, who was hurting us economically, who, who was the bad guy. And they came to the conclusion throughout America that the enemy uh, was, was us. It was fellow revolutionaries, not Tories, not British agents, but fellow Americans who were using the war for profiteering, for extortion, for monopolizing goods, for playing the prices to maximize their own income, while people in their communities around them were suffering, especially families that had sold, uh, sent soldiers to war on fixed uh, income contracts. And so um, there was a rising 
rising animosity to the people that uh, claimed that they were patriots, but in fact were self-serving uh, people. Now, these images that are flashing on the, on the line here, we want to keep this one for a second. That's, um, I think the audience will identify the fellow on the far left. Uh, <laughs> that is uh, Mr. Satan, and he's looking at a, a group of um, 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 uh, extortioners. These are people that are, are uh, selling, buying goods, holding them back, and then uh, trying to sell them at a high price, even though they know there's great need uh, out, out, out there. This was uh, um, a very, very, it's a little play uh, about a obnoxious, self-serving family. It's called the uh, downfall of justice. A farmer returns on Thanksgiving Day, and he is uh, he and his uh, really um, uh, disgusting family sit around and make fun of the uh, poor Americans who are begging while the rich farmer has has goods. This um, little play was um, published in Danver, Massachusetts, um, right at the very very last days of 1778. And it's very rare. There are only two copies that come. This one comes from the Huntington Library. But it graphically brings forward um, the, the disappointment and anger that people felt at the betrayal within their own midst. And you can see that with this kind of emotional sensitivity, why uh, the issue of sustaining a revolution is um, uh, important for us to come, I mean, People, people who were very, very unhappy might have turned to other options than simply becoming the U.S. of A. So um, obviously, well, this this person uh, dealt with the the experience of, of feeling betrayed uh, by his fellow countrymen yeah. by writing a play. What what did other Americans do? I'm sure I interrupt you. Why don't we move up a, a slide here or a, an image? There, there. I, I realize that it, it's very faded, but you just have to take uh, my word for it that um, uh, what we're seeing is uh, expressions of discontent and anger. These are Continental soldiers who've been sent off from um, a, t a town, and um, they're wondering why they're not getting their pay or why their pay isn't um, um, uh, sustaining them in food and, and clothes. And uh, at the end of, the, of this little play, again, it's called The Downfall of Justice, the uh, major figure says, uh, reminds readers or viewers, I think readers mostly, that um, when soldiers become very, very unhappy, they sometimes turn their arms on their own people rather than on the enemy. And... Well, um, that seems unthinkable in our American Revolution. In fact, um, we see uh, the factual basis that these kinds of thought were were happening. If the if if the government and the whole system of the economy wasn't supporting these guys in the front, then what's the point? Uh, would would be what the play asks. We now know how, what these communities did to these extortioners and these. Uh, speculators, or the dreaded word, the monopolist—you know—all all these economic terms that, frankly, if you follow the stock market, might be familiar. But that's another story. But yeah. uh, the towns did what will strike any e economist watching us tonight as a totally irrational and certainly ignorant uh, response. 
And that is they decided to deal with hyperinflation on the community level by setting prices and setting wages uh, at the level of the start of the war. And so town after town uh, set around. You can imagine how these committees, it must have been incredibly boring. I'd sit there in Newburyport or Salem and I'd say, Kevin, do, do, do you remember what wheat cost in 1774? How about, how about going to the tavern? Remember we used to have a beer? How much did that cost? And yeah. so they, here we see um, from Newburyport the extraordinary detail uh, wheat, rye, rye, shingles, oats, hours and hours of research into price trends and labor trends. We can move up a, a slide and see some of these other towns' reaction. Here's Ipswich for the prevention of monopoly and oppression. They're not talking about the revolution for independence. They're not talking about Ipswich, let's beat the British Army. They're talking about people in their midst who they feel have betrayed the cause and need uh, to be reminded about economic justice. No, it's mm -hmm. just, let's move up another one, another slide. Well, keep going. We can see this is a, a but this is my favorite one, uh, Salem. Uh, I mean, it was even the people that put together these uh, economic reports complain because, in fact, uh, Prices moved even as they were setting them. But mm. uh, my favorite one is um, a, a, a fun funeral uh, directors and, and uh, grave diggers. So the committee got to, they said, well, you know, that should be, that's probably three shillings, maybe three and a half shillings to, that's the price. And then somebody, you can imagine me, and he said, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what if, a, what if a, a small person dies? What if a child dies? That's not as much work as if a big guy dies. So they said, oh, yeah, that's right. Maybe we should have half price. So the, the, the incredible detail of public life becomes the language of revolutionary. In, in other words, to sustain the revolution, you're worried about how much a beer was supposed to cost. Now, and they, Kevin, and they did it in formal ways. It's, I'm seeing all kinds of signs in, 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 in what you're posting here of committees and selectmen. So they're going through the processes of the law, it sounds like. Well, they're, 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 they're going through committees. The committees are uh, generally uh, elected. And indeed, what sustained the revolutionary governments was... Um, for the most part, uh, town committees, uh, uh, mm -hmm. self-constituted. That's why the book is called The Will of the People. The, re the revolution is being worked out and defined and given meaning uh, at, at, uh, at this level. Now it would be very tempting uh, to say, what a foolish act. You know, the people of Salem can fool around with prices of grave diggers, but I'm sorry, inflation is more complicated. It has to do with loans in Holland. It has to do with international currency exchange and all that. But that, that is not my point. My point is that at a very, very tough time in the revolution, thousands of ordinary citizens, not soldiers, not founding fathers, are coming forward and participating in a revolutionary challenge. It was uh, 
an act that reinforced commitment. It was a public meeting that sustained a cause that could have gone very, very bad. And so I refuse to ridicule them for their economic foolishness, but rather see this as an absolute vital moment of uh, reconstituting the uh, enthusiasm for independence. So is, is this your answer then to why that, that classic historiographical question of why the American Revolution doesn't take the same course as, say, the French Revolution? Is, is, this, is this where you find the answer there? It's in this community level of engagement? That is certainly one, although I'm sure there, that was true of, of many revolutions in KD. The, the comparative history can take us only so far. Sure. There was not an embedded, uh, hated uh, a priest caste. There weren't uh, uh, an aristocracy that had lorded over the folks of Massachusetts. It was a more egalitarian society. And it may have been that egalitarian spirit uh, coupled with a uh, dedication to a rule of law. Uh, very few, almost none of these committees ever uh, engaged in um, physical uh, torture or uh, misuse of power in order to uh, uh, achieve their ends. And even people that were, in fact, branded as uh, gross exploiters oftentimes were uh, either exposed to the public in a sense of, of a ritual shame or given a small fine. It was more the, the, the process of announcing what um, justice in a revolution movement should be that we should, I think, uh, our attention. My point about the, the comparativeness of the revolution is uh, that many of the questions we would ask of other countries have not been asked of us. But then you go on and you say, well, give, let's take, take a point, Kevin. Look at the French Revolution. After the terror, it led to the Directory, and then finally settled down into a dictatorship under Napoleon. Our revolution ended. There was a peace treaty. People who had suffered horribly, seen their, their, their family murdered, had their farms burned out. Terrible thing. And yet they were willing to pretty much let it go. And so it, it is remarkable, and I'm not sure I answered it fully, but 1784 or 85, the run of the Constitution, could have been a story of uh, un unaccommodated rebel rebels, uh, people that still wanted to carry on vigilante you know, taking to the hills of Ohio. Could have happened. It happened in France with the Vendée, but it didn't happen here. And that is uh, something I find remarkable about our revolutionary story. It absolutely is. And one of the ways that at Mount Vernon that we, uh, and I, I, obviously I think, well, there's, there's, there's truth in both the and both uh, visions that we're about to describe here, but you're describing a, a from the bottom up uh, way in which the American Revolution uh, settled into something like a peaceful and Republican world. Uh, at Mount Vernon, we often uh, look to George Washington as having played a key role there. Uh, that is, uh, he could have taken more power than he did. He provided the sort of unifying 
uh, influence that the revolution needed uh, and a stabilizing one. Uh, but I wonder if you could speak to how, how do you bring some of the great figures, the George Washingtons uh, in particular, uh, into this, uh, this much larger story that you describe in your book? Right. Uh, well, um, as you know, well, I, I wrote a whole book about George Washington. I'm very, very fond of him, as I, I've told anybody that will be patient enough to listen to me, that the more I studied George Washington, the more I came to respect him as a person for his integrity and his honesty, and mostly for his Republican sense that this was a government uh, of, of the people, and he would not become Napoleon. He would not become Oliver Cromwell. And that's, that's, that's good. Look, we know quite enough about the Founding Fathers. We seem obsessed by them. We know what they ate, how they loved, how they cheated, how they whatever. And we probably more know more about John Adams's mealtime than we do about revolutionary committees that actually sustained the war. It's not that I reject the Founding Father narratives. It's just that uh, I, I think that we should, as I said earlier, realize that without the folks in the situations I talk about, um, all the founding fathers would have been just a, an elite book group, perhaps at a university, talking about Harrington or other topics, and we would have still been singing "God Save the Queen" in America. I wonder. Uh, I wonder if you could um, say a word. I'm sure a lot of people, as you as you describe the the American. Um, concerted effort to see through the cause have thought about the, those those Americans that actually didn't right the the loyalists. Uh, um, I wonder if you could say a word. How what did you learn in writing this book uh, that helped you understand those who who never did come into the fold, or maybe those who did find a way to to move from initially supporting the revolutionary cause uh, to resisting it. Um, what what can you tell us about the loyalists in, in this equation? Um. Well. The Loyalists, for many reasons, were uh, outmaneuvered very quickly early in the revolution by revolutionary uh, committees that filled the gap uh, where the, the downfall of British, British rule. And in various early of 1774 and 75, Dissent was very difficult. Uh, the, 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 the revolutionaries had taken over basically the enforcement of revolution, we would call it ideological control. Mm. I might say, and, it, and, and, the, and the Tories uh, suffered, uh, and they complained about free speech. And uh, one of the things I try to remind uh, my readers is, is, is obvious, anybody that watches television today, world news, is uh, a revolutionary change, regime change, uh, major political alterations, are messy, angry, violent businesses. And there yeah. has been an effort, I think, over the years to rather sanitize our revolution of remove things like fear, remove things about domestic violence, as if we could just simply follow Washington and the Founding Fathers right up to the Constitution without worrying about all that bloody, nasty business that foreigners engage in. But, in fact, our revolution... Um, I had some bad moments. There's no no question. I don't see how it could have been any other way and 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 succeeded. Uh, people who study the Tories uh, often feel that they were done by, and they have a good point. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, um, on these communities, in in the communities, and they're uh, seeking for justice in a number of ways. They did maintain control. 
I might, if I may, just say one other point, because I know we're going to go to a comment time. The big, the big point of the book, if I may say, is that the revolution did not start as revolution. Nobody in 1774 or 75, instead of maybe a few extremists, wanted an independent country, certainly hadn't thought about a republic. They wanted the British to reform the empire, to be fair, to give them trade acts, to stop taxing them. That was all, all the goal. And then gradually they fell and found themselves drawn into a violent confrontation. And many, many people at the community level came forward. People, men, it was mostly men, all men actually at the community level, uh, who took uh, positions of responsibility that they had never had before. These were new men. These were politically n- new men. And they were making decisions about their neighbors. They were making decisions about the boys that were being sent off. They, they took control. They were living, Kevin. They, were, they found themselves living republicanism. They hadn't set out that way. Yeah. But the experience of running a revolution, the experience of getting through eight years of war, turned our revolution into a real revolution. It became a republic through the experiential moment of actually doing revolution. Outstanding. Thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting story to tell, even uh, no matter how many times we talk about the American Revolution, uh, there's there's uh, new ways to think about what uh, came of it and, and, and where it came from. Uh, we, let's go to the audience questions, because I think we have a good number of them uh, to, to explore. Um, we have a question uh, from Bren about uh, autonomous communities, uh, especially those in New England, so these towns that you've studied uh, closely, Dr. Green. How did they come to support the national project, potentially at the peril of their local independence? Uh, so this is a, it's a big question, how it is that people in, in small communities that maybe never traveled more than 40 miles from their, their home uh, came to think about a new nation. Uh, what could you uh, uh, say to answer Brent's question? Well, Brent, that's a, the tension between local communities and the um, uh, Continental Congress was uh, real. Uh, you have to remember the Congress was uh, pretty pretty weak and it, unable. In fact, it, it could hardly find a place to meet. Sometimes it became a kind of a roadshow. Um, the uh, the major document that I would point you to was uh, passed by by the first Continental Congress in October of 1774, and it's called the Association. And um, the eleventh um, chapter of the Association. Uh, recognizes the independence and the independent um, uh, procedures allowed by communities by saying that all of the boycotts and the uh, control or the policing of trade would be ceded to these committees that were self-elected. In other words, the Congress is, is saying to the communities we recognize that's where the action's going to be. And once they had made this decision, of course, these com- communities throughout, especially New England, but there were also New Jersey and Maryland and Virginia, um, uh, uh, took on ever greater activities. They, uh, within months, it was no longer a question of tea. It was a question about getting gunpowder and arms and, 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 and basically running things. When you challenge one of these committees, which happened from time to time, they turned table and said, what? We're only doing what Congress told us to do. 
and that's run the revolution. Hmm. Wow. So uh, Congress actually made that first gesture to bring in Absolutely. the. I think the uh, and, and and Brent can go. I think the association is one of the absolute most important documents that allowed our revolution to go forward uh, with community backing and participation. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Bren. Uh, we have another question coming in uh, also from Adam uh, asking about how does your argument square? Uh, how, do, how do you represent your argument with the experience of the Continental Army at Valley Forge and elsewhere where local communities preferred to trade with the British who had solid money, who had specie? Um, uh, what can you say, uh, say to that? Uh, obviously, that need for hard currency um, uh, led some people to uh, to seek it where they could find it, which may have been from British sources. Um, what can you say to answer Adam's question? Well, uh, revolutionary Americans being human beings, uh, you're going to get some folks that you can trust and behave themselves and some that do not. And... Um, the Klan designed a trade with the British uh, in the Del Mar Peninsula uh, was especially bad, uh, sometimes along the Virginia coast, where um, people uh, desperate for uh, hard currency would trade um, farm goods and meat uh, to uh, British, oftentimes British, British ships. And uh, this was, this was a, a, an issue of enforcement. And in my chapter on revolutionary justice, uh, show how um, quickly and forcefully um, these uh, enforcement committees uh, address the system, uh, address the abuse of, uh, of, of trade. Obviously, um, there, there was contraband, but it had to be a, a, a stop. It was also true in, in the New Jersey, Manhattan frontier. There was a lot of trade that went back and forth. But again, both the Continental Army and these local committees did a fairly good job of, of policing uh, the situation. Fascinating. Uh, we have a, another question that is going to ask us to explore, not those who sided with the American revolutionary cause or those who maybe resisted it, um, but those who just kind of tried to stand in the middle. Um, so uh, I wonder if you could talk about a, if there's any way to estimate uh, a percentage of the population that was neutral or tried to just stay out of it entirely, and how were they treated? Yeah, well, this is this is why I, I gave a lecture in, in Boston where I was asked this, and I gave uh, what I thought was a, a good answer, and someone came up from the audience with um, actually some knowledge and corrected me. But there's a very famous... Um, um, quotation that appears in almost every textbook. It comes from John Adams, where he allegedly said that one-third were supported the revolution, one-third were thoroughly against it, and one-third wanted to remain neutral. And that's what I told the people in, in, in Boston, and uh, because I'm such a careful scholar, they all nodded their heads. But this woman came up, and she actually works with the Adams Papers at the uh, Massachusetts Historical Society, like your place, a great institution, and said, you know, Adams, when he said that, wasn't referring to the American Revolution. No, he was referring to the French Revolution. That's where the quotation comes from. Wow. So, <laughs> so the one-third, one-third that we all quote is yeah. at best irrelevant. Um, my, my feeling uh, to the questioner is that um, uh, these, these committees, and there were thousands of them, 
enforced and policed the revolution so thoroughly that they outmaneuvered um, uh, opposition uh, so thoroughly that it became very difficult in town after town to express an alternative view. Again, these loyalists and Tories uh, probably uh, suffered. Uh, if I might, I might give you a quick example, if I may. In Connecticut, sure. they had a lot of problem with raiders, British raiders and loyalists coming over from Long Island and attacking little towns for cattle, for food. And so the Connecticut legislature said, well, look, what we're, we're going to do is every town, a town will form a, a list of suspicious people. Uh, we don't know, but they're, they're not like us. They're, they're, they're probably closet Tories. And so whenever there's a raid, and we can't catch them because they grab cows and sheep and run so fast, we'll assess the damage and then charge it off to the local people who are suspicious. Uh, that's the way you enforce a revolution. Yeah. Wow. Um, that, it's, it's one of the things that I, I, our next question uh, brings out is uh, something that I, I know you write about in the book, and I'm, I'm curious to explore it, is uh, the ways that, that women were playing roles uh, here that helped to shape the course of the revolution. You've talked a lot about uh, men who maybe were members of these committees, uh, but women also had roles to play in helping to enforce or to uh, uh, project a particular vision. Uh, what can you say about the, the, the role of non-elite women uh, during the war years? Sure, I, and that's that, that's fair. I mean, and because we often tries to um, seize upon elite cases, elite women. There's endless quotations of Abigail Adams as if she was the only woman that lived at this time. When in fact, war is disruptive uh, of of um, families. In an earlier book uh, called the Marketplace of Revolution, I have a visible proof list. Of, uh, of women in, the, in Massachusetts who signed their names to public protests uh, or signed their name to support um, the uh, boycott of tea and other goods. Signing your name on a public document is um, an act of courage, actually. And as we all know, signing petitions uh, it makes your inner feelings public. And, and yet women were coming forward and actually making a political statement. And in the towns, um, uh, there was, a, a, during the war, a good deal of support uh, for and by the women. Um, town, as the federal government or the national government proved unable to fully supply the troops, as the earlier questioner at Valley Forge, um, the towns often took over uh, the supplying of their own troops in shirts and blankets and whatnot. Um, also, the towns I found, although this is something I wasn't able to pursue as much as I would have liked, recognized that women and children whose husbands were fighting were in peril economically and often created a kind of um, a network um, um, to, to, to support um, the, these, these women, the female patriots. I might say one other last element, because I think your question is uh, very, very salient. In New York, I found a lot of cases where New York State passed a law that said that if um, your husband, if the husband ran away to New York and was clearly an agent for the British, uh, farms could be taken over by the state. They could become public property. 
And uh, the Albany courts uh, uh, was besieged by a number of women who said, well, look, I, I can understand the love, but my, my husband, I never, never agreed with him. You know, he had a lot of crazy political ideas. And I think you should let me keep my farm because I mean, otherwise, I mean, we, I, would, I wouldn't follow him to New York. And um, generally, the, the, the Albany courts sided with women and recognized that they were able to hold and articulate clear uh, differences, in this case, support of the revolution, and not be a threat to the mission of independence. That's a, that's a, that's a, 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 a to, sort of to break, to break. Um, we have a, a, another question that, that uh, has, has me thinking. I actually, I actually have not thought, thought along these lines. Uh, and um, so this question asks whether the way that the English in the past had handled rebellions, uh, so we might be talking about the Jacobites or even before, uh, affected how Americans went about the war after Lexington and con Concord. Uh, for example, how Jacobite soldiers were treated uh, after the the final defeat in, in 45, I believe. Um, uh, is uh, what do you what can you say about uh, any American uh, uh, thinking along the lines of past English behavior uh, regarding rebellions? Well, that's also uh, an insightful question. It's hard to answer. Um, the uh, the Irish case, and um, I've been writing lately uh, about Ireland my, myself. Breen is an Irish name; some people will recognize it. Um, uh, when the Irish uh, rose up, which they did often <laughs> and never successfully, um, the, the put down was was often really brutal, really terrible. Think of uh, Cromwell in the uh, you know during the. Uh, of uh, uh, 1650s or 40s. Um, in Ireland, the Jacobite Revolution or Rising was put down also fairly uh, um, uh, brutally. In America, the situation was a little different. It was 3,000 miles away, and the logistics of supporting the war and supporting the troops uh, were very different, and there was recognition that supply lines, especially food, would have to come uh, from the war zone itself. I mean, it's, it, 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 uh, there, there was a continuous effort, usually unsuccessful, to try to um, win back the Americans in some way. Um, and uh, a part of it was just a recognition that as we in this country uh, discovered in the war in Vietnam, that a, a, a war at a huge distance requires different logistics and tactics um, and so the comparisons with uh, Ireland and Scotland go a little the way, but not too far in an interesting comparative way. Fascinating. Uh, let's, uh, uh, there's a moment in, uh, in the uh, slideshow that you had uh, where you, you talked about the danger of soldiers actually uh, sort of taking their own, uh, taking the revolution into their own hands. And of course, we have a, a moment that we talk about quite a bit in Mount Vernon. It's one that, that every every student of American history has has uh, uh, explored a bit, and that is the, the the potential conspiracy towards the end of the war uh, to unsettle uh, Congress uh, in favor of, of uh, supporting the troops. And I wonder if you could uh, speak a bit to Cynthia Miller's question about the Newburgh conspiracy, George Washington's role in addressing the troops. Um, if it, this seems like a moment that uh, touches on that, that again, the way the revolution could have turned out quite differently. Yeah, I, well, I agree with you folks down in Mount Vernon. I, I think possibly a Newburgh 
uh, Washington's handling the Newburgh conspiracy may have been his most noble moment. Uh, his, he used his full force of personality and charisma to head off uh, a really quite threatening situation. I don't cover the, uh, the uh, mutinies of the Pennsylvania line and several other lines at the end of the war because it did not directly uh, well up from the community uh, level. It was among the soldiers themselves that felt that they were being done by. And they were. They were, they were not being paid. They were not being treated with respect. Again, in every revolution, uh, the, the folks that probably um, suffer the most are the, are the, are the tropes, the, the, the privates, the grunts that actually carried on the action who find themselves easily cast aside. Uh, and people all turn to the leaders and say, thank you for doing all that good work. Um, so all I can say is that the, the, the mutinies in the lines was, was a very serious business and Washington's little speech about um, uh, having becoming blind in the service of the country may be one of the most important one-liners in our history. That's right. That's right. Actually, uh, at, at a at another institution uh, just up the road at the Society of the Cincinnati uh, Anderson House, in their library there, uh, Ellen Clark, uh, their librarian, was, was showing me a document they have where jo George Washington was purchasing a pair of eyeglasses just before this uh, um, uh, this speech, this famous moment where he put on his glasses. Uh, and it's a really remarkable moment. You can actually see described there that, of course, we don't have the glasses. We don't know exactly which pair he would have been wearing. But we have a letter where he uh, was uh, purchasing these glasses that then became one of the great props in American history uh, because he was able to use them to such theatrical effect. Well, one of the, yeah, I love those moments myself, and I've spent some time at the New Museum of the American Revolution in uh, Philadelphia, where they have some extraordinary uh, artifacts, including a piece of the bridge it conquered and things you just can't imagine uh, yeah. survived, but uh, there they are. Washington's greatness to me was his, his integrity, and it every level. He loved stuff. He loved to buy stuff. He liked the latest things. He would have liked the country magazine, you know, telling you know, how, how you entertain this or that lord. He loved that stuff. But when it came to boycotts and actually sacrificing his personal comfort for the good of the country, he, he, he stepped away. And I might say that many Americans did that at a time when today, if I may, that we're asked to uh, think of uh, the larger common good of protecting our neighbors and protecting ourselves. But there's always a, a few people that think that uh, liberty means doing whatever you want at the expense of the rest of us. Um, they wouldn't take much comfort from the ability of the American Revolution on, to mount very successful boycotts in the name of a common cause. Uh, of, of, of foregoing some of the items they most dearly love, tea. I mean, t taking away tea uh, then would be maybe a quick equivalent to taking away your iPad. Uh, I mean, it's unthinkable, but they did because yeah. they recognized that this was uh, the only uh, community activity they could be monitored and um, might have leverage over uh, the British uh, market. So we, we should take, I think, some inspiration from the founding people as well as the founding father about guiding us in times of uh, great peril.
I completely agree. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, parallel to explore, too. Uh, we also have a, a question coming in uh, about the the experience of war. Um, and it's certainly, uh, the, the, the starting premise is certainly a true one, that we often find ourselves today feeling as if war is a far and distant thing. Um, how, how, how would you describe the experience of these people, the, not the soldiers, let's leave them out for a minute, but the, the, the people uh, north and south uh, in the American uh, revolutionary years and their experience of the war itself? How did, how, did, how did the war come home? Well, most of the committee, committees, most of the communities I write about, and this was one of the points, did not experience the face of battle. I mean, after the Battle of Bunker Hill, there were a few, there were some battles in Rhode Island, but largely New England uh, w- was not a, a, a battle zone, uh, and uh, the, the war moved south and, and various other places. But the point was that without the threat of an army marching through your state, uh, how do you how do you sustain the excitement if you're not threatened? You might say, well, let the next state handle. There was a little of that, but by by and large. The, the treatment that, I mean, as the, the questioner uh, must know, that um, in terms of uh, the dead or the killed in war and the revolution compared to the total population, it was uh, one of the most lethal wars in American history. I mean, only exceeded, of course, always by the Civil War. But um, many of these young men died far, far away. And increasingly, as um, historical archaeologists are finding, actually mass graves in places um, uh, in, 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 in New York area along the Hudson where they had uh, central um, uh, organizing areas and uh, ammunition dumps. Um, and there's been a, a large fight recently in one of those New York towns uh, where uh, somebody wants to build some commercial uh, enterprise on the site of a revolutionary grave or uh, many many graves um i hope they don't make it nobody asked me but uh the respect for the revolutionary war dead has probably not uh, been as great um as in other wars because uh people scattered it was such a scattered instance and um uh you go to any graveyard in new england including uh, vermont and you'll you'll be surprised how many tombstones you'll find uh, with recognition of uh, service in the Continental Army. Wow, let's uh, let's uh, we're coming into the home stretch, and I want to find a way to cram in two more questions before we okay. uh, uh, let you go, Doctor Brain. Uh, we have a question uh, now about uh, it's actually a, a a great one that I used to ask my students all the time as they were starting a project and they were diving in. Is what surprised you? Um, when they, when you have an opportunity to, to dive into any historical uh, uh, field, uh, what what stood out to you as as a surprise? And and for you, it's a particularly fascinating question because you've been studying this period for so long. Uh, what surprised you about the colonists' uh, ways of viewing uh, the world, the ways of viewing the, the common cause in in your research for this latest book? Well, there, any good research project is is. Kevin and any historian knows is uh, uh, research is always um, an act of serendipity. You find things you didn't expect. I mean, that's the whole point of it. It's, it's, it's research is fun. Writing is not so much fun, but research is. Um, And I think the, the largest surprise I had in writing the chapters on 
fear. Consider, consider when a society becomes afraid, Germany in the 1930s, uh, uh, England during Cromwell's period, that people do some really bad things. They do some terrible things and they they're often spend the post-war years apologizing or trying to erase what, what they have done. And during this betrayal period and during the revenge period, the American people could have, and I think we probably would have tried to understand, um, killed neighbors, uh, engaged in torture of uh, vigilante activity on a large scale. And my surprise was how many times in all the states I studied, people under tremendous stress tried as best they could to obey or to sustain something that we would recognize as a rule of law, as something like due process, of something like representation. I was surprised because towns, for instance, in northern New York, up around uh, Albany, west of Albany, they, they were, it was dangerous. There were a lot of fighting and, 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 and really nasty, nasty warfare. And yet these committees time and time again would try to get witnesses and, and, and evidence. And you wonder, how, how could they do this? They're, they're in the midst, of, they might get killed. And yet Americans, and I, this is my surprise, at every moment pulled back from uh, vicious extremism. Remarkable. Uh, the last question, may well be the, the biggest question of all uh, for, for someone who's, who's explored so much, um, is how has your understanding of the revolution changed over the course of your career? Uh, and, and I don't want you to talk about the breadth of the, breadth of the ways it's evolved, but it, maybe if you could pick a, a theme or, or something, uh, a something singular that has is, is evolved in your own understanding of, of the American Revolution. Well, it has been a long process, and uh, I appreciate uh, the recognition of some of these books that I've, I've, I've written, probably because of my background and my family's background. Uh, uh, I've always been gravitated towards the understanding of how people on the ground react to the perceptions of the abuse of power, whether it's corporate power, political power, or some other kind of power. Uh, the people have found ways to negotiate and react and control the, the threat. And in uh, my, my book, Marketplace of Revolution, I, I tried to trace how, how people use the common marketplace to express a, a shared sense of um, what they thought uh, the empire should be, look like. And in my other books, but even the Washington book, I praise Washington for being entirely in touch with this American strand. I don't know of any leader other than Washington that so fully understood what it meant to have a republic based on the will of the people. We talk about that theoretically, and we, we have great texts that go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. But to actually see it on the ground working is very difficult. And so I'll praise Mr. Butterfield and Mount Vernon by saying that the perfect marriage of the revolution was a great people's leader and a lot of people that supported him. Well, that's a great note to end on. Uh, Dr. Brain, thank you so much for joining us for, for, for an hour this evening. It's been a pleasure.
Uh, I'm so glad. Uh, this is, again, uh, the, our third and final Michelle Smith Lecture for 2020. Uh, we're excited uh, to uh, to welcome you all back at, uh, into, into Mount Vernon, or at least as close as we can at the moment, uh, for a conversation like this. Uh, you also have an opportunity to, to buy uh, Dr. Breen's book, um, and uh, you can, uh, I, I, I promise you, learn a great deal uh, from from. Uh, uh, reading this new work, as well as I think, uh, see some contemporary relevance in ways in which uh, the American, the meaning of what it is to be an American, I think, is is, is well uh, well described here uh, from the very founding. So thank you, Dr. Brain. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here tonight. Uh, we have plenty on store uh, uh, coming around the corner starting next week. Uh, every day at noon, we have live streams. Uh, Mount Vernon is trying to stay connected with you while the gates are closed. But please uh, continue to support Mount Vernon, even in this time when you can't come visit us in person. Uh, there's a link here, a way to donate and support the institution. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Dr. Breen. And thank you to everyone. Have a wonderful night. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.